Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. John Schufelt, a emergency medicine physician, a serial entrepreneur, and a venture capitalist as well. Uh, so Dr. Schufelt, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Ah, pleasure, honor to be on. Awesome, awesome. You're also uh, a podcast host as well, and we'll get into that uh, later. But definitely, give us a little bit more background on yourself. Like, where'd you go to school? Where'd you train? And kind of like, you know, what, how your practice evolved over time. Sure. So I'm an emergency medicine physician. I went to medical school at Chicago Med, now Rosalind Franklin. Did an EM residency at Christ on the south side of Chicago, which was kind of a knife and gun club, and I'm sure still is. And then started really working as an academician, which I thought I'd spend my whole life doing. And then and then soon thereafter, we moved out to Arizona. I took a medical director job and started a number of ED contracts um, around Arizona and kind of grew that business for a while. Um, started an urgent care chain in 93 and grew that to about 60 urgent care centers before I ended up selling out to a private equity firm, which was interesting. And uh, I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things uh, you know, after that. Very interesting. So was, uh, was entrepreneurship something you, you always thought you would do like as part of your career as a physician, or was it more something kind of, as you took on more of these business type roles, uh, after you graduated residency? You know, I think I, it was never, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't think I knew what the word meant way back then. It was just more, I would see something and be like, okay, this is somebody, somebody has to fix this already. And then I would look and like, God darn it, no one's fixed this. So I'm like, all right, I guess it's me. And then I'd muddle my way through it. And, you know, many of the things were total abject failures and a couple of them seemed to work out. Okay. Um, but a lot of it was just seeing a problem. And I think a lot of physicians do this. We see problems and we're like, okay, please, somebody, this is a no brainer. Someone had to figure this out already. And then you find out that no one actually has. And you're like, all right, I guess it's going to be me. Interesting. I'm I'm curious from from some of those early. I know you've started many companies. I guess from some of those early companies you started, what were some of the biggest, I guess, lessons you learned? You know, because it was like your first few few times doing this. Well, I'd like to say, you know, the folks. You know, we have a venture capital firm now, so we have a lot of young entrepreneurs that come through. And I, you know, let's say I've I've already made every mistake in the book, so you can't, you literally can't shock me. So some of the big lessons I learned early were one one around capitalization. And just having the capital to, to try to execute. And, you know, for our, my first one, you know, I think we, I think the house was for a long period of time was triple mortgaged. I'd work in the ED all night to to work in the urgent care all day. And 
basically use all my emergency department uh, money to fund the urgent cares. And we were undercapitalized to say the least with a lot of bank debt and a lot of personal debt. And it knock on wood, it all worked out, but that's not the way I would do it again. So that's one thing. Make sure you have the capital structure in place and also make sure you have the business formation done properly in, in your what's called your cap table in place because these are things that can burn you years later for rookie mistakes you made at the outset. And then really kind of culture and values trump everything. So, you know, find people that have a different skill set than you do, but also that your values align because I've had a, you know, a couple of funny stories and you look back at it. Clearly I should have had a gut instinct or did and ignored it that the person I was getting into business with was not the person I should be in business with. And like I said, I've had a number of crazy funny stories where we had to part ways, you know, after I caught them embezzling funds, lying to patients. I mean, crazy things that you never imagine a professional doing. And I would always be like, well, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, how did you not pick up on this guy? Because retrospectively, it was all clear. But prospectively, for whatever reason, I just headlonged into it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've learned it almost like, I'm curious if you agree with this, picking business partners. It's almost like you know, finding people spouse. in marriage, it's like a, it's like a, yeah, it's like a spouse or a marriage. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> and sometimes harder to get out of. And so, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what, what a lot of physicians do is pick somebody that thinks like them. And so you find another emergency medicine physician and you both think the same way. It's great. However, you really want to find somebody with a different skill set. And so, because otherwise, you know, Henry Ford said, if two people at the board table are thinking the same way, one of them's not needed. And it's kind of true. Yeah, sure, sure. That makes sense. I'm curious, given that you, you have personal experience with this when you started out, and then obviously now you're on the other side doing investments. I guess where where do you feel like that limit is on like funding it yourself? Because obviously, like that's the ideal situation. You want to try and fund it as much as yourself at first, but you know we all have our limits. Like you like you were kind of alluding to earlier. What do you feel like is like when someone should kind of feel like that's the signal? Maybe I should go get some extra funds. Well, I think you know to start off, a lot of us you know get out of with a lot of school debt. And it's incredibly important to live well below your means for a long period of time, because, you know, a couple small, a couple small bumps in a row can really, can really sink you. And I frankly just got lucky that it, that it worked. So I think, you know, if you save some money up, invest enough money into it, that gets it to get your minimum viable product. That's what I would do. Okay. This works. I proved it works. Yeah, I haven't scaled it yet because I don't have the funds to scale it. And now you go out and get seed capital. And maybe your first round's friends and family, which I ultimately did with this other business called MeMD. But I put the first, you know, couple hundred thousand dollars into it myself, which is what I felt I could afford. Now, you know, being in emergency medicine, we always think we've just totally got it. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I won't need more money. I've totally got this. And then as it turns out to try to scale it nationally, I needed a few more, few more bucks. And unfortunately, friends and family money came through and it worked out. So I guess it depends on your comfort level. I, we looked at a company where the founders only put in $8,000 oh, oh. um, and who's a physician and is trying to raise around um, four to 5 million right now. Now that to me seems a little too low for a physician, but again, it's comfort level. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Definitely. So maybe tell us a little bit about that first company that you are that company you alluded to the next care, urgent care that, that you uh, started and how, I guess, how, cause you really scaled that. Cause I think you said like you got PE involved and I guess, how do you think you were able to scale that uh, so successfully? Yeah. You know, it wasn't all that successful. It, I mean, it was <laughs> successful in the sense that it worked. We scraped by, you know, I would do tons of shifts in the emergency department and tons of shifts in the urgent cares. 
And it was the long, it was kind of in the days where people urgent care wasn't a thing in the early nineties. So I really had to educate people on what urgent care was for. And that was a learning point for me. I remember we opened up in Denver and we had an open house and a couple of funny things, a homeless guy had ripped down the sign and was sleeping. It was a, it was a canvas sign because we just opened, he was sleeping into the canvas sign rolled up and I didn't have the heart to like say, give him my sign back. It was clearly his, you know, his bed and his house. So I'm like, all right. But I remember the first day somebody walked in and said, okay, urgent care. Do I need to be sicker to come here than I do to an emergency department? And I remember thinking, oh, I'm just screwed because the whole population did not know what urgent care meant. That's how early it was. So we, you know, I, I literally from 93 to 2008, just grinded it out with debt, basically, and in own funds. And I think at that point, we'd opened about 27 of them uh, and then brought in uh, 25 million in debt and 25 million in private equity. And where my mistake was, and God knows I made a ton of them, but where my one of my mistakes was with this, you know, private equity usually invests in late stage. And I lasted about two years with this private equity firm uh, before I basically got forced out. And um, I remember telling a friend of mine who was an attorney about the story. He said, wow, you lasted two years. That's amazing. And I go, amazing. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, private equity. He goes, I, he goes, I used to do deals with them. It's six months. He goes, you know, two years is a big deal. Like patting me on the back. And I, you know, I felt like a total chump because I probably should have known that, you know, venture capital is very founder friendly, private equity, operator friendly. And they don't think you can do both. And so that was a learning lesson for me. And so, you know, with this venture capital firm we started, we really were very founder friendly because, you know, I've, I've been in those shoes. It's a rough road to hoe, as I'm sure you've learned. Sure, sure. At that same time, you you started MeMD after that. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. And I guess maybe tell us how what you took from your early entrepreneurial experiences into that experience. So, so MeMD was a really early virtual medicine thing. So I literally was out of NextCare in September of 2010 and started MeMD in October of 2010. Again, thinking, oh, this is a no-brainer. Who won't want to be seen virtually? I mean, again, just a no-brainer in my mind, which is always tends to be a brainer. And like, okay, it's not quite as obvious as you think it's going to be. And again, you know, most of the population at that point was like, yeah, there's just no way I'm seeing a provider online. Now it's ubiquitous and it's a must have. Then it was uh, like, you're crazy. And so we started off B2C, business to consumer, and it was really going to be for behavioral health patients. So I thought, okay, you know, you shouldn't be touching behavioral health patients anyway. This is the, this makes perfect sense. And in my emergency department experience, these this was a very underserved population. We see these folks in the ED. I felt bad for them. We'll do a behavioral health 24-7, 50 state um, behavioral health virtual medicine clinic. Again, no brainer. Totally misread that. You know, we had PhD psychologists, psychiatrists on board, but just no, no, uh, no takers. And then we started kind of morphing into urgent care. And I would go out to these urgent care owners and I'd say, look, you can see provide you can see patients virtually from all over your state, whatever state your provider is a license in, including your state. Get your name out there, take up, you know, if they have downtime, they can see patients virtually and pretty much every urgent care. And I went to next care as well, except one said, well, yeah, but we'll cannibalize our own business. He said, yeah, maybe a few patients from your, from your three mile radius that you're pulling patients from may do this virtually where you'll get paid a little less, but think you'll get your name out all over the United States if you can, or at least all over the state, no one bought into it. So finally we went probably three years later. We went B to we went B to B, and we go out to health plans and large insu large insurers and large um, self insureds and started treating patients that way. And that's really how it started to scale. 
so that was kind of a learning again what what i think seems to be obvious rarely people think is obvious yeah that's an interesting pivot that obviously you know proved out to be uh the right one i'm curious like on all your gears of experience like what you know when should you recognize kind of the writing on the wall that you should you know pivot or or <laughs> or things like that you know may, like you said may not be so obvious at the moment but i guess looking back <laughs> Well, you know, if you look back at a lot of the, you know, the, and I'm not including myself in this category, but a lot of the really great entrepreneurs, and you think of Steve Jobs, it's like, you know, you build it and convince people that they need it. That's great if it works, but there's there's legions of people where that simply has never has never worked. And so I think, you know, when I look at when I look at problems now and think of solutions for them, I think, okay, scale it back, do an MVP, minimum viable product, take it out there, test it on a group of a group of folks you know, or a group of people who will be early adopters, get their feedback and then iterate along the way. The problem is if you build an urgent care, you know, you're signed a five-year lease and yeah, we would negotiate 18 month outs in those, but still you're on the hook for at least 18 months, if not longer. It's a, you're making a big move and it's costly. You know, if I was doing a telemedicine business today, I'd, you know, in telemedicine isn't where it is today. I would start on, you know, using FaceTime if you could do a HIPAA compliant FaceTime and start it like that. Again, to me, this was who wouldn't want to be seen virtually. And we had an eight minute wait time 24 seven, who wouldn't want to be seen that way, but people just weren't quite there yet. Even though banking was there, education was starting to get there. Healthcare wasn't there yet. And it, and it was before the pandemic, but clearly the pandemic helped. Sure, sure. It seems like kind of with both these, you were a little bit ahead of your time, which is kind of interesting looking back. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would like to think so, but I think part of it was probably more hubris and stupidity <laughs> in the sense that, you know, there's probably ways I should have vetted this. But, you know, had I vetted it, because when I would tell people about it, they'd be like, I'd say, doesn't this make sense? And they'd say, oh, God, that makes great sense. You know, I can't believe no one's done. I'm, I'm going to do it. But I was talking to people who knew me who mm-hmm. probably was like, you know, my enthusiasm might have been a little too infectious. <laughs> like, you know, I was like syphilis. And uh, as opposed to being the, going to the populace and saying, you know, is this something you would use? So I think most of them would have said no. But the people <laughs> that used it loved it. I mean, you could save this person's life in the emergency department. They'd say, yeah, that's what we're paying you for. So like, but man, you treat a woman with UTI at 3 a.m. and you're like Moses. I mean, they love you. So that's- those people come back. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess then, you know, you exited this company to Walmart. Is that correct? Correct. And then I guess maybe tell us a little bit about the acquisition process. Like since since you went through both, you kind of went through kind of two different types of acquires. Like like when yeah. did you start thinking about that? Like what's you know is that something you should really not think about till someone approaches you? I guess which like what's your thoughts on that? I guess you know, what. So I've had about fifteen companies and thirteen exits, and the MMD was you know probably the largest exit with certainly the largest company. You know, right now I tell people to. In you know, I, I wrote a book called Entrepreneurs RX, and the idea behind this book was to get physicians excited about starting their own business and kind of outlining all my failures in this book so they don't have to do them. And one of the things I say in this book is, think it's hard, but think of the exit at the start and start plotting and put all your ducks in a row early. And you, you'll probably be wrong on the exit. It probably won't happen the way you expect it to, but at least think that way, think in that mindset. Like, okay, how is this going to further my goal of getting to an exit? And I can't say I really had ever really did that. And uh, it was the wrong thing to do. Walmart, we had gone out on a process to raise capital or to sell. And it wasn't really going anywhere. Again, pre-pandemic, people weren't quite buying into to telemedicine yet. And then 
you know, we gotten some offers that were okay. And then Walmart came, we went through this process with Walmart and I have to, you know, I've probably been in Walmart four times in my life. And now I've been in there more obviously, but at the time say for a group, they are professional to the nth degree. They were, they were highly ethical as well, but they were badasses. I mean, from the CEO, I got a chance to talk to down. Every one of them was just rock solid. And, you know, you read the book, you know, the, the book about Sam Walton started way back with him. Very cool company culture. And what they said is, you know, basically you name the price, we'll name the terms. And my ears perked up, but the terms are where the terms are where the rubber meets the road. But to their credit, I mean, they went through everything and it was, you know, the proverbial 800 pound gorilla and the little ant. Um, but we had great legal counsel and knock on wood, we had a great team who did a lot of things right. And Walmart needed us at the time um, because there were concerns from Amazon really encroaching into the space. So, it, you know, it worked out well. And, you know, they say timing is everything. And like when we raised money for NextCare, we closed the deal on Friday. Lehman Brothers failed on Monday. When we sold to Walmart, you know, a couple months later, the valuations had changed pretty dramatically. Um, because it was kind of the outset of the recession. So Teladoc stock went from $334 down to about $28 over a pretty short time frame. Wow. Yeah, that's that's some good timing there. I mean, it's uh <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's it, there's a lot of luck. And you know, if you they always say if you luck always seems to find the people who work the hardest, but it was a lot of luck. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so I guess after that, what what led you now to starting what you're doing now with the with the venture capital firm? How what was your inspiration to start that, and and what what kind of investments do you do you guys like to make? So I, I've been thinking about it for a while. So as I mentioned, I Forbes published this book I wrote, and the idea behind the book was to get physicians excited about doing this because I hear you know we all hear you know physicians and the you know proverbial lunchroom say, oh my god, I've got this great idea. I can't believe no one's done this before, and then it goes nowhere. But a lot of them really do have great ideas. Because we're on the, I mean, you're on the front lines of doing IR you know, interventional radiology. I'm sure you'll see things along the way that said, you know, this would be a lot better if we had X. Mm -hmm. And and then you say, okay, I'm going to, no one else is looking at X, I'm going to invent X. So the book was to get people excited about doing this. But in my mind, it was like, okay, we're going to build up a cadre of folks that we can eventually fund through this urgent care, through this venture capital. So we started Accelerant Ventures and, um, and it's, it's, knocking what it's going to take off. We made about six investments so far. We're on our way to uh, complete a fundraise. We've raised about $25 million so far, but we're really early. We're seed and pre-seed focused on kind of early entrepreneurs and helping them along their path um, with both financially with capital, but also with some gray hair and uh, a little bit of expertise. Nice, nice. I guess maybe tell us a little bit about your your partners that you're doing this with. Like, how did you how did you go about picking partners? And was there, is it how you would pick partners for your startup, or was there kind of other things you looked for with picking investment partners? So I, you know, I I had always found people who thought like me, and I don't want to say always, but you know, I finally got away from that. But I was looking for people who were clearly a different skill sets than I did. So Chris Yu is a PhD cell biologist out of Yale who ran the accelerator. I met him at a Mayo uh, a Mayo conference, uh, and he and I just totally clicked. And he is, I call him Paul Revere because he knows everybody. He's the, he's the consummate networker connection guy, a wonderful guy. And then Doug Sylvester was a dean. So I went back to law school in 2003 to five, and I was on faculty there, and I guess I still am. 
that he was a dean for 11 years and he was an IP attorney uh, before he became an academician. So he stepped down from being dean and I literally called him up and you know invited him to lunch and kind of pitched him on this idea. And he he's like, I'm in. Like, this is exactly where I want to be. So it's we've it's worked out well because the three of us do think differently and we all bring different skill sets to to this. And I mean they're and and both they're also just truly great guys. Interesting. I guess so far, what's been like the most gratifying part of of being on the on the VC side of things for you? It's being able to share in the excitement of these entrepreneurs when when their product or when their vision all becomes becomes real and seeing it go from an idea to a device or we haven't done any drugs yet but really to a device or to a SaaS model platform and all of a sudden people start using it and it works or they get fda approval and they're off to the races um that's pretty gratifying i mean it's it's always more gratifying when you're the one doing it but it's pretty damn gratifying helping other people do it as well i mean it's because you're kind of in a mentor role which is really it's really a fun role very cool. I'm curious, what's your what's your feeling on being a like an entrepreneur, business operator versus being the investor? Which one do you think's harder, and which one, um, I guess, have you? Do you feel like you enjoy more? <laughs> well, I think it. You know, I, I think at my age, um, you know, actually, it's funny. I was just trying to pitch my son to do a startup uh, six months ago, and um, startups are a ton of work, and. Everybody always thinks, oh, this will go smoothly. And, you know, the mantras, startups are a lot of work. And realistically, there's a, there's, it's a lot of work times 10. And so I think, it, you know, at, at my age now, um, I'm in the right spot. The venture capital suits me well. I mean, I've made a ton of mistakes already. I've had a couple of successes and I can really help point people in a direction. And, you know, the people we look for are those that have the humility to take advice from others. Not everybody, not everybody does. So we're looking at people that we can really work closely with that will, you know, the, the pushback, but also that listen to seasoned or reasoned advice. Interesting. I guess the the other thing is maybe tell us a little bit more about, uh, about your podcast. You know, you talked about your book and then I know you run a, a podcast now with different entrepreneurs and we've had some of the same guests even. So maybe tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So Entrepreneur RX is, is a podcast that, that we put out about every other week and is just kind of as really as I have time to do them, but I always get really inspired by talking to folks because one, they're super enthusiastic. And oftentimes I'll, I'll invest, if not with the venture capital, I'll invest personally because I'm a, you know, because they convinced me to be a believer and I see a need for the product. So it's really fun. It's kind of this, you know, dose of uh, adrenaline or probably, uh, you know, serotonin when I talk to these folks, because I'm like, I, I'm so pumped up after I talk to him. So it's really a lot of fun. You know, I tried to do this with kind of the Guy Raz, how I built this sort of ethos of really going through it. You know, Guy Raz does them in their much longer term and they usually, they come out the other end by the time they're on Guy Raz. I'm usually talking to these people at the early stage of everything they're going through and experiencing and what they've learned, what's been challenging, what's surprised them. So it's it's pretty fun to listen to because it kind of reminds me of when I was doing it as well. That's really cool. Yeah, I can definitely echo that. I've I've had a number of founders on, and it's been uh, it's always I, I'm always inspired after every single one I do. So it's it's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's helping the shot of adrenaline. Like, all right, I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And so yeah, no, that's really cool. I think by as we close out here a little bit, I want to ask you, you have some really interesting hobbies I was reading about. Maybe maybe tell us a little bit how you how you balance your life when you're not practicing medicine or uh doing investments or entrepreneurship. 
So, I mean, the, I'm not sure I have that many interesting hobbies, but the the hobbies that I do, I mean, I, I love to cook, I love to read, and I'm a total lifelong learner. But the the one I end up doing a lot is flying. And so for me, it didn't start off. It started off in residency, more be, is more fear-based. But as I got to fly more, it became very pragmatic. Like when I moved out to Arizona, I'd fly to work in a helicopter every day, not every oh, day, wow. six days a week, it seemed like. And so it became, and you know, I worked about an it was an hour drive, but a 20 minute helicopter flight. And so it saved me a lot of time and allowed me to go back and forth every day as opposed to, to saying, oh, I'll just, you know, stay here on at the hospital or stay in, you know, the motel six down the street. Um, and now, you know, uh, it allows me to fly around the country, meet entrepreneurs, but also uh, we staff a number of um, facilities on tribal lands. We have about 450 providers and and I'm still the CEO of the business, but but I, I do very little day-to-day, -day, but I'll occasionally go out there and work shifts. So okay. it allows me to fly to these very remote, austere environments um, and get there. I mean, I can literally, you know, the plane is in the hangar that I'm sitting in now, and I can get out to the runway in, in two minutes and take off and go work someplace. So it's it's as much as I love it, there's a pragmatic side to it as well. So I usually use the helicopter to fly around the state and the jet to fly around the country. Very cool. That's that's really cool. Um, I guess are you uh, my other, I, as I'm thinking about this. Are you still practicing medicine? Do you still practice someone? And I guess how do you do. balance that with uh, your other stuff? You know, it's funny. I'm 62, and I literally thought I'd practice emergency medicine. I'd be like Pablo Picasso. You know, he was in his studio the day before he died. I don't know if I'll get to my 90s in emergency medicine. Um, I do think if you're a physician who's leading other physicians it's good to continue to practice. Now that's not always possible, obviously, but I, but I'd always, I never want to be the person who somebody said to him, well, yeah, that's what you used to do. But let me tell you reality today. I always want to be able to say, no, I'm, I'm still in the trenches with you. So I still go out to these reservations and practice. And we have a total band of brothers and sisters, rock star docs and nurses out there. So it's fun to go out and work with them. Um, there will be a time I'm sure when, my ability to keep up on the day-to-day -day of what I need to do in emergency medicine wanes. And I kind of starting to see that now. And I never want to be, you know, I'll never be Michael Jordan going out on top because I'll never be Michael Jordan. But I but I want to go out where, you know, people aren't pushing me out the door. They're happy to see me and think I can still do the job. Very cool. I guess the, the last thing is I want to make sure, you know, people can find more out about you. Where's Are there any platforms you're you're active on? And where can people find more information to connect with you? Yeah, I mean, they can go to, uh, I think it's John Schufeld, MD, um, dot com is uh, one of the websites or Accelerant Ventures, and it's spelled um, X-C-E-L-L-E-R-A-N-T Ventures.com is the, our, our venture capital one. Or on um, Entrepreneurs Rx is the title of the book, but also the title of the podcast. And that's easy to find all the typical podcast places. Very cool. We'll definitely uh, link for all that in the description below. And Dr. Schufeld, thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to be with us. Really learned a lot from your journey. It's You've done a lot of really interesting and cool things. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for all the great work you're doing as well. And, and have a great time in your residency and fellowship. It's like I said, I would, you know, if I was your age, you'd pick the best one to be in. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.